Chapter 7 of A Man Obsessed by Alan E. Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Jeff sank down in the chair, his forehead streaming sweat. He clenched his fists as he tried to regain control of his trembling muscles. How long had Schimmel been standing there? Just a second or two? Or had he been watching Jeff for ten minutes, watching him punch down the filing codes, watching him stuff the filing card into his shirt? There was nothing to be told from the doctor's face as the man smiled down at his trembling quarry. There was nothing in the eyes of the guards who stood behind him in the hallway, their hands poised on their heavy side-arms. Schimmel turned to one of them, nodded slightly, and they disappeared, their boots clanging in the still corridor behind them. Then he turned his eyes back to Jeff, the ghost of a knowing smile still flickering about his eyes. "'Find anything interesting?' he asked, his eyes narrowing slightly. Jeff fumbled a cigarette to his lips, gripped the lighter to steady it. "'Nothing to speak of,' he said hoarsely. "'Been a long time since I worked one of these files.' His eyes caught Schimmel's defiantly, held them in desperation. Finally Schimmel blinked and looked away. "'Looking for anything special?' he asked smoothly. "'Nothing special.' Jeff blew smoke out into the room, his trembling nerves quieting slightly. "'I see. Just sightseeing, I suppose.' Jeff shrugged. "'More or less. I wanted to see the setup.' A dry smile crossed Schimmel's face. "'Particularly the setup in the filing room,' he said softly. I thought I'd find you here. Blackie said you just stepped out for a short walk, so we just took a guess." The doctor's eyes hardened sharply on Jeff's face. And all dressed up like a doctor, too. He stepped across the room, jerked the cap from Jeff's head, snapped the string to the gown with a sharp swipe of his hand. "'We don't do this around here,' he said, his voice cutting like a razor. Doctors wear these, nobody else. Got that straight? We also do not wander around breaking into filing rooms, just looking at the setup. If the guards had caught you at it, you wouldn't be alive right now, which would have been a dirty shame, since we have plans for you. He jerked his thumb toward the door. After you, Jeff. We've got some work to do tonight. Jeff moved out into the hall took up beside the tall doctor as he started back for the escalator. "'You weren't serious about testing me tonight, surely?' Dr. Schimmel stared at him. "'And why not?' "'Look, it's late. I'll be here in the morning.' The doctor walked on in silence for a long moment. Jeff followed, his mind racing, a thousand questions tumbling through in rapid succession, questions he dared not ask questions he couldn't answer. How much did Schimmel know, and how much did he suspect? A chill ran down Jeff's back. What had he been doing with the dice? Could Blackie possibly have told him? Or could he have heard about the freakish occurrence in the game-room through other channels? And what could he learn in the course of the testing that he didn't know already? Jeff puzzled as he matched the doctor's rapid pace. They went up the escalator, down the twisting corridor toward an area beyond the living quarters that Jeff hadn't seen before. Above all, he must keep his nerve, 
keep a tight control on his tongue, on his reactions, make sure that there were no tricks to tear information from him that he didn't dare divulge. He looked at Schimmel sharply, a frown on his face. I still don't see why this can't wait till morning. Why the big hurry? Schimmel stopped, turned to Jeff in exasperation. You still think we're running a picnic grounds here, don't you? He snapped. Well, we're not. We're doing a job, a job that can't wait for morning or anything else. We work a twenty-four-hour schedule here. All you do is provide the wherewithal to work with, nothing more. But I'll be tired, nervous. I don't see how I could pass any kind of test. Schimmel laughed shortly. These are the kind of tests you pass or fail. Actually, the more tired and nervous you are, the better the results will be for you. They'll give you an extra edge of safety when you're assigned to a job. What the tests tell us is what we can expect from you, the very minimum. Basically, we're working to save your life for you. Jeff blinked at him, followed him through swinging doors into a long, brightly lighted corridor, with green walls and a gleaming tile floor. What do you mean, save my life? You seem to delight in just the opposite here from what I've heard. The doctor made an impatient noise. You've got the wrong information, he said angrily. That's the trouble. You people insist upon listening to and believing the morbid stories, all the unpleasantness you hear about the work here. And it's all either completely false or only half-truth. This business of bloodthirstiness, for instance, it's just plain not true. One of the biggest factors in our work here is making arrangements for optimum conditions for the success of our experiments. By optimum, we mean the best conditions from several standpoints, from the standpoint of what we're trying to learn, the experiment itself, that is, and from the standpoint of the researcher, too. But most particularly, we're working for optimum recovery odds for the experimental animals, you in this case. Jeff snorted. But still, we're just experimental animals, from your viewpoint," he said sharply. Not just experimental animals, Schimmel snapped angrily. You're THE experimental animals. Working with human beings isn't the same as working with cats and dogs and monkeys, far from it. Dogs and cats are stronger and tougher, more durable than humans, which is why they're used for preliminary work of great success. But basically, they're expendable. If something goes wrong, that's too bad. But we've learned something, and the dog or cat can be sacrificed without too many tears. But we don't feel quite the same about human beings." "'I'm glad to hear that,' said Jeff sourly. "'It makes me feel better.' "'I'm not trying to be facetious. I mean it. We're not ghouls. We don't have any less regard for human life than anyone else just because we're responsible for some human death in the work we're doing. For one thing, we study every human being we use, try to dig out his strengths and weaknesses, physical and mental. We want to know how he reacts to what, how fast he recuperates, how much physical punishment his body can take, how far his mental resiliency will extend. Then when we know these things, we can fit him into the program of research which will give him the very best chance of coming out in one piece. At the same time, we fill a spot that we need filled. There's no delight here in taking human life or jeopardizing human safety. 
They turned abruptly off the corridor and entered a small office. Schimmel motioned Jeff to a chair, sat himself down behind a small desk, and began sorting through several stacks of forms. The room was silent for a moment. Then the doctor punched a button on the telephone panel. When the light blinked in answer to him, he said, "'Gabe, he's here. Better come on up.' Then he flipped down the switch and leaned back, lighting a long, slender cigar and undoing the green robe around his neck. Jeff watched him, still puzzling over what he had just said. The doctor seemed so matter-of-fact. What he had said made sense, but somewhere in the picture there seemed to be a gaping hole. "'This sounds like it's a great setup for you doctors and researchers,' he said finally. "'But what's it leading to? What good is it doing? Oh, I know, it increases your knowledge of men's minds, but how does it help the man in the street? How does it actually help anyone, in the long run? How do you ever get the government to back it with the financial mess they're facing in Washington?' Schimmel threw back his head and laughed aloud. "'You've got the cart before the horse,' he said, when he got control of his voice. "'Support? Listen, my lad, the government is running itself bankrupt just to keep our research going. Do you realize that? Bankrupting itself. And why? Because unless our work pays off, and soon, there isn't going to be any government left. That's why. Because we're fighting something that's eating away at the very roots of our civilization— something that's creeping and growing and destroying." He stared at Jeff, his eyes wide. "'Oh, the government knows that the situation is grave. We had to prove it to them, show it to them time and again, until they couldn't miss it any longer. They saw it finally. They've seen it growing for a century or more, ever since the end of the Second War. They've seen the business instability, the bank runs and the stock market dives, They've seen the mental and moral decay in the cities. They could see it, but it took statistics to prove that there was a pattern to it, a pattern of decay and rot and putrefaction that's been crumbling away the clay feet of this colossal civilization of ours. The doctor stood up, paced back and forth across the room, and sent blue smoke into the air from the cigar as he walked. Oh, they support us all right. We don't know for sure what we're fighting but we do know the answer is in the functioning of the minds and brains of man. We're working against a disease, a creeping disease of men's minds, and we are forced to use men to search those minds, to study them, to try to weed out the poison of the disease, and so we have the mercy men to help us fight." The doctor's lips twisted in a bitter sneer as he sat down heavily on the chair again, crunched the cigar out viciously in the tray. Mercy men, who have no mercy in their souls, who have no interest nor concern with what they're doing, or what it may be accomplishing. They are interested in one thing only, the amount of money they'll be paid for having their brains jogged loose." The scorn was heavy in Dr. Schimmel's eyes. "'Well, we don't care who we have—addicts, condemned murderers, prostitutes, the trash from the Skid Row gutters. They're all drawn here, like flies to a dunghill. But they're here on errands of mercy, whether they like it or not, or know it or not. And we take them because they're the only ones who can be bought, and we guard them for all they're worth, so that the goal will be accomplished." He took a deep breath and stared scornfully at Jeff. 
That's you I'm talking about, you know." Jeff's hands trembled as he snuffed out his smoke. He stood up as the corridor door opened, admitting a small, dark-haired man with thick glasses. He was dressed in doctor's whites. Jeff rubbed his chest nervously and took a deep breath, still acutely aware of the stiff card in his shirt-front. "'All right,' he said hoarsely. "'So you're talking about me. When do we get started with this?' The little dressing-room was cramped. It reeked of anesthetic. Jeff walked in, followed by Dr. Schimmel and the other doctor, and started removing his shoes. "'This is Dr. Gabriel,' Schimmel said, indicating his myopic colleague. "'He'll start you off with a complete physical. Then you'll have a neurological. Come on into the next room as soon as you're undressed.' And with that the two doctors disappeared through the swinging doors into an inner room. Jeff removed his shirt and trousers swiftly, carefully folding the file-card and stuffing it under the inner sole of his right shoe. It wasn't exactly the perfect hiding-place, if anyone was looking for the card. But not once during the conversation had Schimmel's eyes strayed curiously to Jeff's shirt-front. Either Schimmel had not seen him take the card, or else the doctor's self-control was superhuman. And no mention of the dice had been made, either. Jeff gave his shoes a final pat tossed his clothes on one of the gurneys lining the walls and pushed through the doors into the next room. It was huge, dome-ceilinged, with a dozen partitions dividing different sections from one another. One end looked like a classroom, with blackboards occupying a whole wall. Another section carried the paraphernalia of a complete gymnasium. The doctors were sitting in a corner that was obviously outfitted as an examination room, the tables were covered with crisp green sheeting, and the walls had gleaming cabinets full of green-wrapped bundles and instruments. Schimmel sat on the edge of a desk. His eyes watched Jeff closely as he lit a cigarette, leaned back, and blew rings into the air. Dr. Gabriel motioned Jeff to the table and started the physical without further delay. It was the most rigorous, painstaking physical examination Jeff had ever had. The little squinting doctor poked and probed him from head to toe. He snapped retinal pattern photos, examined pore patterns, listened, prodded, thumped, auscultated. He motioned Jeff back onto the chair and started going over him with a rubber hammer, tapping him sharply in dozens of areas, eliciting a most disconcerting variety of muscular jerks and twitches. Then the hammer was replaced by a small electrode, with which the doctor probed and tested bringing spasmodic jerks to the muscles of Jeff's back and arms and thighs. Finally, Dr. Gabriel relaxed, sat Jeff down in a soft chair, and retired to a small portable instrument cabinet nearby. Dr. Schimmel put out his smoke and stood up. "'Any questions before we begin?' Jeff almost sighed aloud. "'Any questions?' His nerves tingled all over, and his mind was full of conjecture wild, ridiculous guesses of what they would discover in the testing, of what the results would bring. Suppose they learned about the dice. Suppose they found out that he was a fraud, that he was in the center on a private mission, a mission of death all his own, and no party to their own missions of death. And yet, if he had to follow through, the kind of work he would be assigned to would depend upon the results of the tests. That seemed sure." But what if they rendered him unconscious, knocked him out, used drugs? 
His mind raced frantically, searching for some way of stalling things, some way of slowing down the red tape of testing and assignment, to give him time to complete his own mission and get out. But he knew that already he must have aroused suspicions. Schimmel must have suspected that all the cards were not on the table, yet Schimmel seemed willing to overlook his suspicions. And the wheels had begun to move more and more swiftly, carrying him to the critical point where he would have to sign a release and take an assignment, or reveal his real purpose for being in the center. If he were to find Conroe, he must find him before the chips were down. He stared at Schimmel, his mind still groping for something to hang on to. He found nothing. "'No, no questions, I guess,' he said. The doctor looked at him closely, then shrugged in resignation. "'All right,' he said tiredly. "'You'll have a whole series of tests of all kinds—physical stamina, mental alertness, reaction time, intelligence, sanity—everything we could possibly need to know. But I should warn you of one thing.' He looked at Jeff, his eyes deadly serious. "'All of these future tests are subjective. All of them will tell us about you as a person. How you think, how you behave. Desperately essential stuff, if you're to survive the sort of work we do here. What we find is the whole basis of our assignments.' He paused for a long moment. "'You'd be wise to stick to the truth. No embellishments, no fancy stuff.' We can't do anything about it if you don't choose to take the advice, but if you falsify, you're tampering with your own life expectancy here." Jeff blinked, shifting in his seat uneasily. "'Don't worry about that, Jack,' he thought. "'I won't be around long enough for it to make any difference.' Nevertheless, the doctor's words were far from soothing. If only Jeff could maintain the fraud throughout the testing, keep his wits about him as the tests progressed. Then he could get back to the hunt as soon as they were through. He watched the doctor prepare a long paper on the desk. Then the rapid-fire series of questions began. Family history, personal history, history of family disease and personal illness. The questions were swift and businesslike, and Jeff felt his muscles relaxing as he sat back. He answered almost automatically. Then, "'Ever been hypnotized before?' Something in Jeff's mind froze, screaming a warning. "'No,' he snapped. Schimmel's eyes widened imperceptibly. "'Part of the testing should be done under hypnosis, for your sake and for the sake of speed.' His eyes caught Jeff's hard. "'Unless you have some reason for objecting.' "'It won't work,' Jeff lied swiftly, his mind racing. "'Psychic block of some kind.' Induced in childhood, probably. My father had a block against it, too." Every muscle in his body was tense, and he sat forward in his seat, his eyes wide. Schimmel shrugged. "'It would make the testing a hundred percent easier on you if you'd allow it. Some of these tests are pretty exhausting, and some take a powerful long time without hypnotic recovery aid. And, of course, we keep all information strictly confidential.' "'No dice,' said Jeff hoarsely. The doctor shrugged again, glancing over at Dr. Gabriel. "'Hear that, Gabe?' The little doctor shrugged. "'His funeral,' he growled. 
he rolled a small, shiny-paneled instrument with earphones to Jeff's side. We'll start on the less strenuous ones, then. This is a hearing test. Very simple. You just listen, mark down the signals you hear. Keep your eyes on the eyepiece. It records visual-audio correlation times, tells us how soon after you hear a word you form a visual image of it. He snapped the earphones over Jeff's head and moved a printed answer sheet in front of him on the desk, and then the earphones started talking. There was a long series of words, gradually becoming softer and softer. Jeff marked them down, swiftly, gradually forgetting his surroundings, throwing his attention toward the test. The doctors retired to the other side of the room. They talked to each other in low whispers, until he no longer heard them. There was only the low, insistent whispering in the earphones. And then the words seemed to grow louder again, but somehow he had lost track of what they meant. He listened, his eyes watching the cool gray pearly screen in the eyepieces. His fingers were poised to write down the words, but he couldn't quite understand the syllables. And his hands gripped the arms of the chair as he began to rise and then the light exploded in his eyes with such agonizing brilliance that it sent shooting pain searing through his brain. He let out a stifled cry. He struggled and tried to rise from the chair, but he was blinded by the piercing beam. And then he felt the needle bite his arm, and the nonsense words in his ear straightened out into meaningful phrases. A soft, soothing voice was saying, "'Relax! Relax! Sit back and relax!' Relax and rest. Slowly the warmth crept over his body, and he felt his muscles relax, even as the voice instructed. He eased gently back into the chair, and soon his mind was clear of fear and worry and suspicion. He was still, sleeping with the peaceful ease of a newborn child. End of chapter 7